welcome back to Cycles of Orion. This is the eighth episode of Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, containing the second half of the Axiom Sequence. Before we begin, you should know that the Axiom Sequence is meant to be ingested as a whole, so if you want the full experience, listen to Axiom Part 1 first. Now, please sit back, relax, and take yourself away into the world of the Orion Spur. Axiom Part 4 Laura In Alessandros, a small town outside Alhura, on a body. I've been having a reoccurring dream recently. And it's turning bad. You've been thrashing in your sleep the past two nights. Have I? Well, it isn't really a bad dream, but I always wake up feeling strange, like I've done something wrong to something inside of me. Vague. I love it. But seriously, though, Wrong how? Guilt's a strong emotion. It would help if you put a name on it. It's... Okay, just let me tell you the dream. I'm in a huge cave. It looks like hell or something. I only say hell because there's lava underneath me. I thought you said it was a cave. I did. <laughs> you want me to say magma, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's below me, and I'm in a huge open room. So would, would that be lava or magma? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Not the important part. I'm walking on a thin stone bridge over a rocky bowl filled with fire and, I don't know, molten rock. <laughs> the only way I don't fall is if I look ahead at what's coming instead of focusing on what I'm doing. If I just let my body work, I'm golden. But as soon as I start to think about what I'm doing, I fall. At least, that's how I've stayed up for the longest. I've never made it across the bridge. All I get to thinking is that I'm a point along a plane, and then the plane is a bridge, and the bridge is safety, and then I'm on the bridge, and I shouldn't fall, but then I do. It's like there's something I'm missing. I think so too. Hmm, you've got your new piece being performed next week. Maybe you're nervous about that. How long have you been having this dream? About three weeks, on and off. And yeah, maybe you're right. How was your day? Not bad. I had a lot of time to myself. Not much aside from regular freighters. Oh, there was this one ship, real razor of a thing, and polished so well you could barely see it. Left in such a hurry, though. I could definitely see myself warping the spur in one of those. But what about your irrational love for the Hopper 77? One of a long line of modular civilian vessels built by Crone Cosmonautics at the shipyards around Yarrow. Hoppers, mostly used as point-to-point -point vessels in interstellar buses, are a favorite also of those looking to live aboard and cruise the Sea of Stars. The Hopper 77 is a limited edition model that fetched a high price on the Federation's Voidcraft market until after the first insurgents when the Council of Nine voted to purchase all marketed vessels capable of supporting naval rigging. Laura! Laura! I could never deny myself the hopper. Just that if I wound up with this other ship, I wouldn't be too sad about it. Did you see who was driving it? Nope. Oh, too bad. You could have made an offer. The two sat and drank and listened to the new album that Donna had brought home. This was a habit for them and one they relished. 
Donna loved to sit and simply be with Laura, comfortably in and out of silence, and Laura felt the same, but her interests also extended to the music itself. She once told Donna, who was a bit nervous about listening to new music so frequently, that You never know when you'll hear your favorite song. And Donna had kissed her for that. They still listened to their old favorites, of course, but every day they tried to hear something new. There was nothing better for Laura and Donna than to have their attentions drawn together so irresistibly toward a new melody, or harmony, or instrument, rhythm, what have you. They felt as if it connected them like they simultaneously opened up to the novelty and in their open state touched on a level unknown to them by any other means. They felt as if it pulled them back in love every time. How can you say that about yourself? Noah, you so totally missed it. As a result of linguistic drift, missed in the context of Laura's performance should be taken to mean succeeded and excelled. Most of those who use the phrase defend it by claiming that it's like you miss being shitty, you know? Thanks, but I was on stage. I jarbled the first few bars of the second movement, and it was very obvious. <laughs> Maybe to you. You've had good reviews for three days, Laura. There may be three people on a body who could hear that mistake. Hmm. Well, at least I get to live with my biggest fan. You sure do. Hey, did I tell you I had that dream again? The bridge one. Did you make it across this time? No. I was there, walking, doing really well. And then I noticed I was doing well, and the whole thing collapsed. You know... That sounds an awful lot like when I meditate and try to enter deeper states. I feel myself drifting away, and then as soon as I start thinking, finally, here we go, I get pulled back. But then, meditation, my practice at least, is about letting go and then connecting to something deeper. I hope. Your dream seems to be about holding on. You know, you might be wrong about that. It just depends what we're letting go of. What did you say you thought you were? Last week you said the bridge made you feel like you were a, a, a point? Oh, yeah, a point along a plane. And you said you felt something was missing. Hmm, maybe your problem is that you aren't realizing what the cave really is. No, I told you, it's hell. That's what it is in the dream. But the cave, it's not made out of stone. It's made out of you. You're the missing piece. A point along a plane? Along itself? Can I, uh, um... What? Can I get spacey for a sec? <laughs> Donna was prone to what Laura called spacey talk. They had agreed that if Laura was going to have to stop leaving her dishes in the sink overnight, then Donna would have to cut down on the spacey talk, as each habit drove the other up the wall. And so it will come as no surprise that Laura's response was... If you must. And that Donna's response to this opportunity would be to get spacier than she ever had before. It seems to me that you're fooling because you fail to understand that your environment is a part of you. You see it as something separate, and as something that can influence you against your will. But your will is as much of a part of your environment as a bridge. You fall because your body and mind can only really act as one when you fully realize yourself as part of the cosmic whole, to the degree that you and your material environment are inseparable. It's a measure of non-importance, and yet full integration to the point of complete interdependence. You are at once everything and nothing. You know you sound crazy, right? No, 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 no. Let's just talk about light. 
We see different frequencies and intensities of light, right? That's why we have colors and shadows. But if we were to see all of the frequencies of full intensity, we'd be blinded. Now, you could argue that a superior being might have the ability to do this without being blinded, but we can only imagine what a singular being like that might be. God! <laughs> you can call it what you like, but you've got as much of an idea as I have, as we all do. They're only guesses until we can somehow communicate or tap into reality. Maybe we already are. We few lucky beings, blessed with the improbable observance of a human life. You know what boils my brain sometimes? I like to think that at some time in the future, or maybe the past, I don't know. I don't want to limit this to humans, I guess. But anyway, at some point, something will figure out a way to become pure energy. Conscious, but massless. But no, maybe not conscious. Something racier, spacier, like transcendental. Transcendental. Yeah, the thing will travel around and eventually kickstart the whole verse, including itself. Laura, I'm proud of you. That was spacey as hell. So all things live in your great paradox, right? Caught in a cosmic loop with only themselves to blame. I think you might be onto something. This being of energy, the newborn God, becomes the world it inhabits and is all three of creator, created, and creating. It is all of us and itself. Its genesis is the fate of all life, to live and die and live again in our body. My dad would say we're in his image because we and he are one. This is what your dream is all about. You lost me at the dogma. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, like when you walk up that hill out past the Sky Harbor. You use your body to climb it until it becomes automatic. And then your mind is free to think, right? You're always telling me they should call it Eureka Hill. This is why. But when I think about climbing, it's not like the bridge. It gets easier, not harder. When you monitor your body, you mean. You aren't thinking about where you are, or who you are, or what's around you. You're climbing a hill putting one foot in front of the other. It's a funny little distinction between reflecting on the moment and being in the moment. One keeps you in the past, but the other roots you in the present. Not to say that you always have to be in the present. I mean, if you never thought about the future, you'll be unreliable. It's about knowing that you can only change what's here, what's immediate. The moment you start to question your reality, and this isn't to say that you shouldn't, but the more you question it, the less you are going to be living in it and of it. Oi, oi, Laura placed her fingers on her temples and rubbed. This was why spacey talk was normally prohibited. It didn't make any sense, with or without an understanding of science and spirituality, which Donna only very barely had. And also, as a direct result of this talk, Eureka Hill never quite worked as well for Laura again. And so spacey talk was given a permanent ban. So I should fall into the flames. You shouldn't be afraid to fall into the flames, because you are the flames. I like to think you could say the same about material danger, but I'm less inclined to test my theory in the real world. The two sat and drank their tea, and Laura put on the newest new album that they had found. They listened to what would become their fifth favorite album, enjoying their open, connected states in each other's company. They felt joyous together. They felt new together. They felt a part of each other. Axiom, part five. Gary. On board the Midway Sky Harbor, a colossal space station bridging the interstellar gap between Darwinia, Corion, and Quinvald. 
the distal trading hub of the Federation. The Midway Sky Harbor is a Medusa-class deep space station designed to function using centrifugal force to create artificial gravity. From the outside, it looks like a massive jellyfish, thus Medusa. The head of the station, though stationary on the outside, spins internally to produce a net outward force. Maglocks allow access. The tentacles also spin, but since they're not used for docking procedures, they act as modular bernal wards. In the center of the head lies the promenade, a massive open construct with parks, rivers, markets, and other embellishments. To each side of that lie the residential blocks where the fabulously wealthy make their homes. Above the head, three rings, known commonly as the Rings of Midway, or just the Rings, act as a sort of interstellar truck stop where all manner of travelers stop to rest, refuel, and rejuvenate. Below the head, in the wards, the entirety of on-station agriculture, forestry, and skilled labor takes place, and the majority of low- to mid-income residences can be found. The world is at ease when she walks into the room. That'd be my world. And she is Vanessa Nguyen. The moment we're close, I know we're made for each other. We're around the same height, we grew up with the same number of siblings on the same planet, we have similar temperaments and constitutions. Our gait matches up when we walk together. We are, on the surface, perfect for each other. While the lovers claimed that their history on their homeworld of Oriz made no difference in their love for each other in the early stages of their relationship, little did they know that it would later create the personal schism that would eventually drive them apart. The cultures on Oriz are many, subtly differentiated, and devastatingly stubborn in those gradations, and Gary and Vanessa, being from separate continents, felt the sting of those gradations harshly. Around a week after Vanessa clumsily proposed a dinner date and Gary abashedly accepted, Gary was reeling while alone. He was a worrier, you see. But they had gone on that dinner date and things went splendidly. Conversation was light and safe. Sexual tension was high, but Gary didn't like to make love until he knew that love was what was going to be made. Hard fucking had never appealed to him. Luckily, Vanessa was also into light, heavy petting. But unluckily, Gary wouldn't find that out until, by his estimation, at least two weeks from the present. This present. Now. I pace and I pace, making what I think is a concerted effort to wear a line into the floor. I do this rather than think about the way my chest is vibrating. Oh, the wondering is always the worst part. But you know, you know, in the end, I know it's the part that I really enjoy. The pain of not knowing whether or not she cares. The fear of showing my love and falling flat. And hopefully, light. Pray hopefully. The sweet vindication of requital. I have a theory, you know? I think whenever someone says they miss the thrill of romance, it's this pain they really crave. More so, the vindication, maybe. But that takes up so little time that the pain and anticipation are more thrilling than the result. And yet, in the moment, how unbearable the allure of the result. I can't help but fix my mind on that point in the future. Envision the timeline stretched out before me and figure its path the best I can. The best I can. I know it's pointless to fixate. I know I shouldn't obsess but I don't really have a choice. Vanessa's ghost haunts me all day long. No matter how many filters I throw up, 
or chemicals I absorb, I can't shake the thought of her from my mind. Now, of course, I really don't want to, but it seems like a sensible thing to do, and honestly, I'm curious to see if I can. I've often thought I would know it was love if she was always on my mind. And holy hell, there she is! And where is she? Exactly where in my mind does Vanessa reside that I can evoke her so effortlessly? And if she doesn't exist in my mind, then what the hell is exerting this much force on my thoughts? Has her absence left a wound in me? A presence caused by my lacking my other half? Whatever it is, it's keeping me fixed on the future. My mind is constantly observing. If only with the lightest of attention, the next time me and Vanessa will meet. Vindication is a hell of a drug. Oh, I haven't felt this alive in years. Ness and I just parted. I was elated, of course, and Ness was smiling at me, not even blinking. That's a good sign, right? Right? I remember. I felt a little weird that she wasn't saying anything. And when I glanced behind her, I saw the outline of a figure in a long coat. It was speaking to a shadow that was clearly battalion. So being the gentleman I aspire to be, I told Ness to be careful. And then, well... Then she laughed at me, almost as if to say, Do you know who you're talking to? Ha! It's a... It's a good one. Then she brushed my arm on her way past and said farewell. Oh. A touch on the arm is all I needed to put my mind at ease for the night. Tomorrow I'll worry. I know that. I always do, but tonight? Tonight I am glad. Tomorrow can wait. And there's no sense worrying over the worrying I'm going to do in the future, right? And worry over what? Well, I mean, worry that I tried too hard or showed too little? The kind of nagging worry that can paralyze me thinking things like, Does she care? Have I chased her off yet? Am I interesting? Am I overbearing or cold? And that laugh as we parted. Was I an ass? Did I make it seem like she was weak? Like she needed to be protected? And so it was that Gary worried tonight. They could be awful, the doubts he cooked up in his head, but he clung to them. He held on as if for dear life, pulled along by the torrent of his mad love, all for the hope that Vanessa would reel him back in with a touch or a disarming smile and place him in the little eddy where the water wasn't so rough. But love seemed to be mostly doubt and worry as far as Gary was concerned. Bottled up anxieties and bad impressions suddenly dispersed by what Gary momentarily took for certainty. A touch on the arm, and what's left behind is joy. She left me with a stupid grin on my face and warmth in my heart. That is the power she unwittingly wields, and that I long to give her again and again. And I know it's wrong. But every time I find myself safe, I soil it with impressions. I dirty it with worry. I dive into the rapids, get tossed around again in the torrent, dodging rocks left and right, moving toward what I hope is a spring, fixated on the spring but getting dragged underwater. And then, I wait for my love to pull me up. Certainly, Gary's next meeting with Vanessa would bring joy once more, would fish him up again. But the river of requital only runs so long. After enough assaults, doubt conquers love. Even a nimble leaf is bound to hit the rocks eventually. 
Gary would think, will she, Vanessa thought, should I keep fishing? A simple question with one fundamental flaw. Gary, caught in the river, could never seem to swim himself to safety. It is unfortunate that love can be restricted by the law of diminishing returns, and even worse, that it works at different rates for different people. But such is time at work. Love is a wound, and time heals it as well as any other. Gary and Vanessa would heal within six months, after which time Gary would wallow in his quarters for four cycles. But for now, this now, the now of Gary's hope and inevitable requital, Gary was racked with the pain of uncertainty, letting himself get pulled under toward a waterfall that claimed to be a spring. Axiom, part six. Felix, an apartment in the lower ring on board the Midway Sky Harbor. Miranda told me yesterday she wanted to break up. She told me, despite still being in love with me. She said she thought it would be the best to tell me sooner so that we could save what love we had for what our emotions finally settled. She's probably right. But I didn't want to hear any of it. No, no. That's not fair. I wanted to hear how she felt. I mean, I loved her. I love her. I wanted to hear what she had to say. It's just that I knew by the set of her jaw and the gloss in her eye that what was on her mind was going to be painful for the both of us. She's moving off the station. Probably gone by now. No big surprise there. Miranda was always talking about where she'd rather be than Midway, and I've always supported her. I guess I always just assumed that I was included in the list of things to pack. She said that it bothered her that we couldn't talk about her work. She was a mechanic at one of Midway's biggest garages, worked her way right from the bottom. But a <laughs> shop talk always went right over my head. I've always been keener on books and filters. The last thing I remember her saying was something about a convertible warp halo on a, was it, a Darwinian envoy? I understood the basics well enough, but when she got into the hydraulic couplings and negative energy generators, I, I was totally lost. The language barrier gave us too little to talk about, and because both of our jobs were demanding, the end of our day was often silent and exclusive. But don't get me wrong, we, we loved sitting together in silence and doing our own thing, but I think what we learned is that too much silence can be as devastating to a live-in romance as one-sided pride. She said she'd thought about breaking up on the day she was leaving. She'd pack up in advance, book a one-way trip, and tell me as she got on the bus. That way I could have the anger. <laughs> Nothing soothes a broken heart like anger. A good resting place for hate can speed up an emotional catharsis like water on an oil fire. I almost wish she had waited. Now it seems like the pain's gonna linger for years, like an ember kept safe by the ashes on top. Only this ember doesn't stop. It smolders, indefinitely, fed by the longing sadness that comes with the knowledge that she still cares. And apparently that was exactly why she had chosen to say something sooner. She didn't want to watch the two of us disintegrate before her eyes. She wanted to look back on us and smile, even cry because we've been there for each other since the beginning. We started out on Midway as friends, 
met in transit. We got mugged within a day and robbed within a month. We're frontier folk who came to find our fortune on Midway. Cliches are easy pickings, I guess. So then we were jobless, penniless, and damn near homeless, but we persevered. We leaned on each other. We carved out a life for ourselves, and we fell in love. The phrase Miranda used to describe it was overwhelmingly beautiful, and I tend to agree. I also agree that our time would have come soon, though I think I agree more to please Miranda than myself. I knew it maybe sometime in the past, but only for a brief moment. And of course, I denied it casually. I didn't even realize I was denying it was false. To think that something I'd been taking as truth for so long was an illusion for even a portion of that time is jarring. I feel love. I understand it in my flesh. I know it in the meat, in the deep, deep tissue. I always assumed that Miranda and I would be together until one of us died. We're not married and we weren't planning on it, but I took it for granted that death would us part. Now being confronted with the unreality of that bond, the bond that had been my anchor to this world, I, I feel unshackled, like a cosmonaut who's lost his tether. I'm adrift, falling indefinitely through the medium. We spent one last night together. We kept to our own sides of the bed. <laughs> there is a pain like no other in lying next to the person you love as she cries herself to sleep. She knew it was the right choice for her. She said it herself. And yet, with love still in my mind, I broke, shattered at the sound of her unstoppable sobs. Anger would have been easier, but anger wouldn't let us keep our love. And for some ineffable reason, I feel like that's worth it. Worth what I'm feeling now. We said goodbye to who we were when we kissed goodnight. And we woke up the next day to the world of pain and sorrow. Miranda left to stay with a friend. Felix paced around the empty apartment for long enough to realize that he had been pacing for far too long. His other roommate, Jordan, was out at market, and Felix had been brewing alone. I need to get out, he thought, and started to shiver at possible alternate meanings. Unwilling to add existential dread to crippling heartbreak, Felix headed to a bar and turned concern into bubbles. It's no wonder people drink after a breakup. I've got this rock in my chest right in the middle, so it feels like there's no way the alcohol can miss it on the way down. But it does miss. It misses, and it fills the bottomless pit below, which turns out isn't so bottomless after all. So there floats that rock, that nugget of despair tossing around on a violent wave of dull pain. It sloshes around, tearing its edges jagged. And the more I feed the wave, the more cut up I get. But I'm not going to stop. I, I can't stop. I keep reaching for the bottle because any hope for material salvation sounds a hell of a lot better than waiting for spiritual pain to die on its own time. Hope was what had gotten me into this mess in the first place. So why couldn't it get me out again? There was a lot about that day that Felix didn't remember. 
and for a while, that was the way he preferred it. Later, he would lament it as a lost opportunity to feel his love before it faded away forever. Illusion or no, he had lived within it, and it was as real as anything else to him. Maybe that's all that happiness is. A trick that we believe because it's better than the alternative. I swear I've heard that before. And worded far better. God, I'm a dunce. Upon arrival back at home, Jordan said that he didn't recognize the phrase, but that he might not be in the best frame of mind to recognize anything. You see, Jordan was feeling anxious. Anything to do with Miranda and me? No, no, it's... well... Hmm. I walk into Jordan's room and feel the space. Then after a little while, something strange happens. I look at Jordan, see him, feel him without touching him, and I connect to something. Something I don't believe in. It's as if heightened emotions fuel better intuition, or like people can be connected by more than just images and words. I point to the knot that's growing in my diaphragm and ask if that's where Jordan feels it. It is. I've been listening to our old favorites. Hey, you remember when this album came out? <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> exactly. I remember you and Miranda got so whacked out that you listened to this whole album twice without noticing you'd heard the songs before. Oh man, I went on a transcendental journey that night. Saw heaven and hell and all that shit. Yeah, and Miranda thought she was on a beach somewhere? Ah, oh, back on her ease, yeah. Sorry you're feeling rotten, Joe. It's alright. It's not a bad feeling. It's like I feel nervous or condensed, if that makes sense. But it isn't evil. It's like there's something good behind it. I don't know. Well, there were no mistakes between Miranda and I. You know that, right? Yeah, man. I never thought there were. The two were still, and nothing more was said. But the memory of past potential lingered between them. That ember of possibility still smoldered inside of them, as if it connected them to a parallel verse in which actual love and actual lives were realized. Axiom Part 7 René The Promenade on board the Midway Sky Harbor as I walk along the boardwalk, gazing up into the artificial sky, I start to wonder if the engineers designed the cloudscape with shapes included, or if I'm just imagining the forms that swim across my vision. And then, there he is. Clear as the day in the digital clouds, the love of my life has come to smile at me again. Somehow he's bridged the gap between this world and the next, and shown up in the promenade cloudscapes. I stare for an endless moment, and then when I blink, the clouds have changed. Oh, oh, oh my apologies, ma'am. I have, or, or I, or, I have, have a nice, a, a nice walk. As if it weren't enough to see him in the clouds, now even the men who run into me look like dawn. I shut my eyes tight and pray for a moment that I'm not going mad. It's been nine years since Dawn passed, died, moved on, 
None of these words sound right. They're all just words, and they're incapable of expressing what I feel. There is no perfect sentence to describe the nature of his loss. Don had been partial to certain designer intoxicants, and he had continued to use them despite his doctor's word. In truth, though, he's been using them to stave off a psycho addiction that he'd develop in his youth. He used to run with the wrong crowd, and now he was trying to stay sober. He's kind of sober anyway. But soon enough, they took him into the hospital and checked him into intensive care. And at that point, my whole life changed. A cliche maybe, but that doesn't make it any less true. Oh, and don't take any of this to mean that my Don was a bad man. Good men make bad choices all the time, but it's the really good ones who keep moving forward. And moving forward is exactly what Don did. Unfortunately, doctors don't take good behavior into account. And when he finally got sick, his dependency meant he wasn't anywhere near the top of the transplant list. That, combined with Armada's bank account, meant that we couldn't afford lab-grown either. And so it looked like palliative care was likely going to be Don's final resting place. Sometimes, I think it was mine too. I was up at five every day. I found myself and Don a smoothie, headed to the hospital, and spent an hour with him every day before I went to work. Each morning I went in, he looked less and less alive. It was like something was eating away at him from the inside out, and it broke my heart that I couldn't do anything to help. He was my best friend. He still is. He was my husband, my lover, my rock. And I could do nothing, nothing at all. People said that just being there was enough, but they, those people, whoever they are, didn't know shit. They didn't know our love. Only Don and I knew. It transcended everything. We could conquer anything. <laughs> well, except this. I remember Don could look at me from across a crowded room and I would know instantly the love he felt for me. He would touch me or hold my hand as we rode the trams, and I felt as though I was a part of him. That kind of sharing blew me away. We shared everything. He was my life, and I was his. The days in the hospital became harder as time went on, but I had to go to him. I had to be there. I'd finish work late and head straight there, hoping he was still conscious and knew I was there. When they moved him to a private room, I knew it would only be a few cycles before he was gone. I stayed with him every chance I got. I slept in his room in case he went in the night. I had to be there for him. No one should die alone. Two cycles after the transfer, a nurse told me Don was in pain. They put him on morphine, and within hours he was gone. Just like that, a light was out. I held his cold hands tightly and said my goodbyes. I tried to close his eyes like I'd seen people do in the vids, but that's all bullshit. If they're open, they're open, and their heart is held to shut. Don stared, and I stared back, but Don... Don didn't stare, did he? I don't know, but I couldn't leave him. I whispered, come back to me. 
then said nothing. The pain was excruciating. A massive void was left in my life. How could I move on? How could I act like anything was normal? I had my mother and my son by my side, helping me cope, but I needed Don. Everything I did felt lost, empty, meaningless. I lost my sense of being. I lost my faith in love. Darkness prevailed, and though I tried to keep it together for my son, for my mother and my family, it was sometimes too much to bear. But I had to move on. It's what Don would have done. I can't even remember the good times. Even when I think of all the wonderful things we did together, the things that Don did for me and for my family, it's overwhelming. Sometimes I wonder if the pain would ever go away. Sometimes I wonder if, if I want the pain to go away. But no, this pain is going nowhere. Not when it comes from a love like that. A part of me has died and I will never find it again. Nine years it's been. <laughs> Nine years. Where would I be if Don had lived? In those nine years, I lost my beautiful brother and my wonderful mother. Loss is all I feel anymore. Anywhere I look, I see them. In my dreams, in the trees, the clouds are only the most recent. But I have to find a way to keep them with me. And I have to move forward. I moved to Midway with the hopes of doing just that. A new life, a different chapter, one I can complete on my own. And of course, they're always with me, all of them, following close by. Sometimes I can feel them, and I smile. But always, there's a sickness at the bottom of my stomach, the void, never to be filled. I could spend the rest of my life pacing around, filling it with a flood of sorrow. But despite the pain, I know I'm lucky to have known them all. My brother had raised me. He was one of a kind, a fantastic dad, husband, uncle, and most of all for me, the best brother I could have asked for. He taught me how to laugh and how to love and how to be myself. To this day, I can hear him saying things to me, helping me along, helping me cope. It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. That's one of my favorites. It's one of those quotes that's been attributed to so many people that it may as well be anonymous. But for me, it came straight out of John's heart. My mother was my best friend, always. Saying goodbye to her was the second hardest thing I've ever done. I knew that someday we all say goodbye to our parents, but mom was special to me. To me, to my son, and to my friends. I miss her every day almost as much as I miss Dawn. There's a darkness that lures you in sometimes, and if you follow it, it will consume you. I drink to ease the pain, but I'll kick it someday. The ghost of Dawn's demise always looms over me. I take it day by day. <laughs> Nine years, and I'm still trying to fight off despair. It's easy to dwell on sadness, so much easier than happiness. Sometimes I wonder why. Is happiness fleeting? 
Is it some kind of farce that we trick ourselves into feeling so we can get on with our day? Is despair the default setting in life? There was a time when nothing could bring me down. Now, <laughs> now anything can bring me down. And of course, all I do is think about them. All those dragging thoughts. I've thought about getting help. And I've thought about actually doing it. But I never made the jump. Don is my therapist. I talk to him every day. I thank him for helping me and ask him, should I, shouldn't I? It makes him feel closer. But I've always done this. I've always lived for others, lived for their love. Now though, I have to figure out how to live for myself and I don't have a husband or a brother or a mother to help me. I have my son, but he's busy dealing with his own grief in his own way. Psychos, mostly. Another one of my dragging thoughts. No. No more. It's time for me to take back my life. Those who have passed will always be there. Especially done. Holding my hand. Whispering in my ear. Walking in step. Smiling that fantastic smile. And looking at me as if I'm the only person in the world. Just me. Just me. Right now it feels like it really is just me. I miss you, Don. I miss a part of me that was in you. And that's never going to go away. This has been the eighth episode of Cycles of Orion, Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, starring Kate Russell as Laura, Jennifer Nystrom as Donna, Greg Titterington as Gary, Drew Cesera as Felix, Chris Polvey as Jordan, Olga Maldonado as Renee, and E.P. Danis as both the narrator and the time traveler. Special thanks this episode go out to Incompetech for Laura and Donna's music, as well as Gary's and Renee's music. We would like to thank as well the creators at freesound.com, without whom this series would be a lot duller. In particular this month, we featured the sounds of Daenerys, De Superanton, Glitched Tones, JM Evangelist, TJ Moffey, Soundscapes 55, and Stokes. And of course, we would like to thank you for listening. Tune in next month for the first chapter of Elia and the Time Traveler as the saga continues on board the Midway Sky Harbor. But in the meantime, don't forget to share on social media, and if you want to read more from E.P. Danis, head over to epdanis.com.